0: Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 11, and then we'll also look at Luke chapter 10. We thought in uh, light of the events of last Wednesday night, I'd teach on raising the dead. This week has been interesting. I found that some people are curious. I found that some people are concerned. And I found that a few people just want to dance at my funeral. But for those of you that are curious, there's nothing to see. There's nothing to know. Everything's fine. For those of you that are concerned, I'm just fine. Um, there's, I'm just fine. And for those of you that want to dance at my funeral, you're going to have to wait a long, long time. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Uh, John's gospel, uh, we've mentioned numerous times, but uh, it bears repetition, especially tonight. John wrote this gospel somewhere in 92, 93, maybe 94 A.D. Now, Jesus, uh, that's 60 years, roughly 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. So John is looking back with with quite a different perspective than any of the other gospel writers. Uh, he's aware of the other gospel uh, writers. He's aware of the other gospel accounts. He's aware of all the letters that Paul wrote to the church and that Peter wrote to the church. He's aware of everything that we know of that makes up the New Testament. And there were other letters that were written by other people at other times, that um, that never made the canon of scriptures, and that doesn't mean they weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it just means it didn't meet the criteria for what we know of as the canon of scripture. Um, therefore, John is doing a couple of things. He's telling us events that happened, but he's kind of looking back and recognizing and reflecting on the fact that these events that happened mean something and represent something in the bigger scheme of God's plan that they didn't recognize at the time. And that's going to be a big part of John 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So let's start in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus. Maybe I should back up to chapter 10 and remind you that Jesus has left the temple. He's left Jerusalem and he's gone beyond Jordan, what the Bible says in verse 40 of chapter 10, and he went away beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. He stayed there. Many people came to him, but he's way, way, way far away from Jerusalem and the, the main hubbub and headquarters of Judaism. So it says that while he's away, while he's out there, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now notice that John knows that the, his writer, that his readers know who this Mary is going to be. He knows they've read the other gospel accounts. He said it was that Mary, verse 2, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. So he knows these people know her. He knows these people know who they are. These people meaning he knows the people that are reading his gospel, reading the letter that he wrote, the, the account that he gave of Jesus' ministry and his earthly life. He knows everybody knows who this is. Everybody's well acquainted with them. Now, why would they be well acquainted? Well, back to John or uh, Luke chapter 10, we have a little bit of information about Mary and Martha. We'll start in verse 38. Now, it came to pass as they went that he, Jesus, entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. So Martha must be the older sister. It's her house. She received him into her house, and she had a sister named Mary, or called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. You know what's interesting about Mary? Every time we see Mary, she's at Jesus' feet. Every time. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she may help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm not going to get on to her for sitting at my feet. Now she may not be as busy as you think she ought to be. Some people are just doers. Some people are just, they're no, just not happy unless something's going on, unless they're taking care of something. And and they're always great help. You find people like that. They serve in the church. They'll do anything and everything. They're always very helpful. But that does not mean, according to what Jesus said, it does not mean that that's the only way that there is to be or necessarily the best way in every situation. Now, if we didn't have people that did that kind of stuff, the church would fall apart. There's no question about it because they're the doers. They're the people that will get in there yet. They think that everybody else is supposed to be doing what they're doing in the same way, in the same manner, with the same attitude or whatever, and Mary takes a totally different attitude. She's a lot more reflective. She's a lot more to herself. She's not the first one to jump up and in get involved. She's interested in spiritual things. She's interested in saying at Jesus' feet, which you can't be if you're doing all the other stuff. And Jesus wouldn't take that away from her. Now it's interesting to notice that Jesus doesn't condemn Martha. He's just not going to take Mary's part away from her. Back to John chapter 11. This is uh, verse 2 again. This is the Mary that anointed Jesus with uh, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent unto him Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. He whom thou lovest is sick. That's a... That's got to be a Holy Ghost-inspired phrase. The one you love is sick. Now, why are they saying that? Does Jesus love Lazarus more than he loves them? Does Jesus love Lazarus any more than anybody else that believes in him? Is Jesus picking and playing favorites throughout his earthly ministry? I don't think he is. So why do they say the one whom thou lovest is sick? It indicates at least the possibility that they're trying to get him to act on his concern and care and love for Lazarus. They're pulling on the one string that they believe will work. The one you love is sick. Not just, you know, Bethany is full of sick people, you know, and Jesus sent you here to the earth, or God sent you here to the earth to heal the sick. No, there's a special attachment there. The one whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, now remember, he's far away. He's several days away. When he heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha, even though she was troubled about many things, even though she was involved in all kinds of stuff. She never would slow down. She was always had her hand in something, always busy about doing something. It said Jesus loved Martha and her sister. It doesn't say that he loved Mary more than Martha. So don't take Jesus' comment to Martha over in Luke chapter 10 as a rebuke. You need to change the way you are. He's just saying, Mary's found an important part, and I'm not going to take that away from her. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, that Lazarus was sick, he abode, stayed two days still in the same place where he was. Now, I want you to connect verse 5 with verse 6. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus and stayed two days away. Folks, if you don't get anything else out of this story, please understand that when you're believing God for something or you're trying to to get an answer to prayer, the fact that it doesn't come as quickly as you want it to doesn't mean God doesn't love you. In fact, there is something that the Bible says is more important than our immediate needs being met. James said it this way. He said, the trial of your faith is more precious than gold. Most people I know would rather have the gold. But there's something more important. And that is the trying of your faith. In other words, the spiritual maturity that comes with having to wait and stand in faith, fight the good fight of faith all the way through. Jesus Doesn't hurry on. Now, we're going to find out that he knows something else about this. He knows from the first time that he hears that Lazarus is sick, when he makes the declaration, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God. He is not saying Lazarus won't die because Lazarus dies. Can't be saying that. But he recognizes that there's a greater glory of God opportunity or a greater glory of God result at work here than just an individual healing. So he stayed for two days where he was, then after that, which is beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing, then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. Now, folks, this is a very, very important phrase. And again, remember, John's looking back. He can kind of see the big picture. At the time, he's just hearing what Jesus says and says, okay, well, we just left there. We're going back there. The reason we left there is because they tried to kill us or tried to kill Jesus. They would have taken us too, I guess, but now he's going to go back there. What's all this about? At the time that he was hearing this, he, he put no significance to it other than the event that was taking place. Now he has an opportunity to see the big picture. So where he says Jesus declared, let us go back into Judea again, I want you to understand something, folks. The end of John chapter, or really the, the mid part of John chapter 10 was the end of Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem. He left Judea because they tried to kill him. This story, John chapter 11, really starts back in John chapter 8. And John is speaking in a narrative. He's not just telling us this happened and then this happened. He's trying to paint the big picture for us. In John chapter 8, he's in the temple in Jerusalem, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. You remember the 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 result of that? They took up stones to kill him. So that puts him into John chapter 9. On his way out of the temple, he sees the blind man, heals the blind man. The end result of that was that the Jews are trying to figure out what do you say about this guy, Jesus? They get into a big argument with the blind man because they're saying Jesus is a sinner and the blind man says, well, this is a marvelous thing. We know God doesn't hear sinners, but he opened my eyes. How could he do that if God wasn't with him? They kicked him out of the church. They excommunicated him. Jesus found him out there afterwards and said, do you believe on the Son of God? He said, who is he? He said, it's me. He said, yeah, I believe. Jesus has been tried to, they tried to kill Jesus because of his words. Before Abraham was, I am. Now they want to kill Jesus because of his works. The healing of the blind man as well as healing on the Sabbath day in other places. John chapter 10 tells us that they tried to kill Jesus because he declared that he was the Christ. Remember, they said, how long do you make us wait? Tell us plainly. And he did. He told them plainly. And they tried to kill him because he claimed to be the son of God. So they tried to kill him for his works. I'm sorry, for his words, for his works, and again for his claim to be the Son of God. Now chapter 11 is where Jesus goes back to make one final declaration of who he is, what he was sent to the earth to do, and that's what raising Lazarus is all about. It's not just about Jesus raising up his friend because he loved him. It's because Lazarus represents all of mankind up until that point in time. So Jesus says, let us go back into Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late, or lately, sought to stone you. And you're going back there again? Now, they're thinking the way I would think. If somebody wants to kill you in a certain place, not going to that certain place is probably the best idea. But Jesus answered and said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walks in the day, he stumbles not because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Folks, day means spirit, light means flesh. Uh, I'm sorry, day means spirit, walking in the spirit. Walking in the night means walking in the flesh. He's saying as long as you're spirit led, it doesn't matter where you are. Now, I've seen people make some big, big, big mistakes by just trying to make their faith work. I know of some outstanding ministers that died in plane crashes because the weather was such that they they were recommended uh, not to go into an airport because it was socked in by the weather and stuff like that. And they just said, well, bless God, we'll just believe God and make it anyway. Well, they're in heaven now. They made it to heaven, not to the airport, at least not safely. Well, why didn't that work? Because they weren't led by the spirit to do that. They just decided this is what we're going to do. Folks, there are a lot of times where living by faith means you take a step back and say, Lord, what would you have me to do here? Holy Spirit, you order my steps. You tell me what step to take. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm being led by the Holy Ghost to go back there. So we don't have to worry about anybody hurting us yet. These things saith he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he's asleep, he shall do well. Now, they're probably trying to make a case for not going back to Judea. They're probably trying to say, well, if he's asleep, that means he's getting better. Because the report we got that he was sick sounded like he was about to die. And really, that's what the word means that was used about Lazarus is sick. It literally means Lazarus is sinking. He's near death. So now the disciples say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If he's asleep, that's probably a good sign, isn't it? That means he's getting better. Maybe he's gonna make it, maybe we don't have to go. That seems to be their position. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Terrible translation. Because the word translated is dead is literally Lazarus died. Past tense. Not present tense. Past tense. Lazarus died. Interesting, Jesus doesn't call him dead. He said he died. He had the experience of having died. He's not dead because he's not the body that died. The real him's still alive. He still exists somewhere. Lazarus died, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Him who? If he's dead, who are we going to? See the point? He's saying, Lazarus died. Let's go to him. He's not talking about his body. He's talking about the difference between spirit and body. So he said, I'm glad that it happened this way so that you would believe. Now, folks, who's supposed to believe more than the people that are following him as disciples? Shouldn't they believe more than anybody? They've had more opportunity to see the, the miracles. They've had more opportunity to see the works, see the, uh, the, the different things that were done. They've had more opportunities to hear his teaching. They've seen firsthand what he said in each case with the Pharisees, the Jews, and so forth. They've seen how they've been against him the whole way. They've seen things nobody else has seen. Shouldn't they believe more than anybody? But Jesus said, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. You know, the indication is that if Jesus had been there, he wouldn't have died. Both Mary and Martha will tell him that when he gets back to where they are. There is not one case anywhere in the scriptures where anybody died in the presence of Jesus. Not one. As a matter of fact, the two thieves on the cross that were crucified with Jesus at the same time didn't die until after Jesus did. Jesus is called the prince of life. You can't die in the presence of the prince of life. At least from the Bible example. So he said, I'm glad that I wasn't there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto them unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, Thomas, bless his heart, he's got some issues. He's the one that winds up after Jesus is raised from the dead saying, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hand in the print of his nail, you know, the nail hole and thrust my hand into his side where they stuck that spear. I'm just not going to believe. And Jesus finally appears and said, Thomas, thrust your hand in my side, feel the print of the nail. Don't be faithless, but believing. Thomas has some issues, no question about it. He is a guy that looks on the downside of every situation. Yet, I want you to see something. Let's not throw Thomas in the well completely. Notice his attachment to Jesus. Even though he's expecting bad things to happen from this, he's willing to die with him. That's pretty good. Even for a negative thinker, let's go too so we can die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had lain in the grave four days already. Now, it's interesting that John doesn't call him Lazarus here. I put the name Lazarus in for for clarification, but he said he found that he had been in the grave for four days already. Jesus had been a couple of days journey away. It took a while for the, the messenger to come to tell him about Lazarus. It took a while for him to go back, and so when he gets there, he finds that he's been in the grave for four days already. There's an Old Testament scripture that says um, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. It is a historical fact that from Adam to Jesus was exactly 4,000 years. So again, John relating the event of Lazarus being raised from the dead is looking at the overall Significance of Jesus' work. Lazarus represents mankind that is in a spiritually dead condition. From Adam to Jesus, man was spiritually dead. And the whole reason that Jesus came was to awaken us from that sleep of spiritual death. It wasn't permanent because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. Now, Bethany was nine to Jerusalem, near Jerusalem. Only about two miles, 15 furlongs, that's about two miles away. And as a result, because of the proximity of Bethany to Jerusalem, notice what it says in verse 19. It says, and many of the Jews, these are the very same Jews that have been debating with him in Jerusalem, that have been taking up stones to kill him on three separate occasions very recently. They're the very ones that are that are the reason or the cause behind Jesus leaving Jerusalem in Judea and going out beyond Jordan to where John was first baptizing. There's a, they're the reason he left town. And because of the proximity, because it's so close to Jerusalem, because Mary and Martha are well-known, along with her brother Lazarus, they're well-known among the Jewish community because they are such uh, staunch and devout people. Many of the Jews came to Bethany. Notice this. They came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. I'm sure they did a bang-up job. Can I ask you a question? What have they got to comfort them about? What comfort are they going to bring Mary and Martha? Seriously. What comfort can they bring? Folks, let me tell you something about losing loved ones and being around people that lose loved ones. There is no comfort you can bring by pointing to the past. That'll just increase sorrow. Now, you can celebrate events, but that didn't bring comfort. You might can lift somebody's spirits for a moment when they remember the good times that we had. But as soon as they focus or change their focus from the good times that they had to now I'm all alone, they're not comforted. There's only one way that you can bring comfort to somebody that's been grieved by the loss or the death of a loved one. And that is by pointing to the future. The Jews have no future to point to. So many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Here's the perfect example of these two personalities. Mary cannot wait. She's not going to wait for anything. She's going to go find him. He's coming. Okay, let's go meet him. She's out of the house in a flash. Mary, she sits still. Stays right where she is. Then said Martha unto Jesus, now she finds where Jesus is. Jesus is not there yet. He hasn't come to the house yet. He hasn't come to Bethany yet. He's still a ways away. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died or would not have died. That's a true statement. But I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it unto thee. Now, this is a very misleading, uh, well, it's, I hate to use this term because people make fun of me, but it's really blind to us in the English the way that this is translated. Because the word ask is a word that does not put it on equal terms. Ask would be a beggar asking from a a rich person. So she's saying, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I believe you could beg God to do something. Which indicates that she does not have an understanding of who Jesus is precisely, at least a, a full understanding of who Jesus is and his relationship to the Father. So she says, I believe that if you'll just beg God, you've got something special with him, don't know what that is, maybe you're a prophet, whatever, then God will give you what you ask for. And Jesus answers and says, thy brother shall rise again. Now, Martha, and again, this is probably a personality thing, she is so busy about what to do next. She doesn't stop to consider what Jesus is saying. Martha answers and says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Can I ask you a question? In a situation where Jesus has just come, she knows that if Jesus had been there, her brother wouldn't have died, which tells us that she's not even thinking about his bro- her brother living again. Now she's going to get doctrinal with Jesus? What possible good could that bring to her? Is she looking for Jesus to pat her on the back and say, yes, my little daughter? I know this is tough, but God has a plan involved. It may be hard for you to see right now, but there will be a resurrection day someday. The last day. Let me tell you something about folks. Even folks that say they believe God. As long as somebody who claims to believe God is looking for it to happen someday down the future, down the road, someday in the future. They can keep their faith from being committed to now. And faith doesn't work unless it's now. So she says, Master, I know that on the last day there'll be a resurrection and he'll rise then. Jesus answers and says, and this all goes back to verse 22. Whatsoever thou will ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus said unto her, I am. This is the same declaration that Jesus made in John chapter 8 to the Jews in the temple where he said, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He's declaring that he is the Christ to Martha personally, individually, just like he did to the Pharisees in the temple. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not talking about some last day resurrection. He's not talking about some time in the future. He's not talking about sometime in the sweet by and by. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And I'm here right now. That's what he's saying. That's the point he's trying to make to her. He's trying to get her to believe. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, folks, Jesus is talking about two things. He's talking about Lazarus in his physical death, and he's talking about Lazarus as a representative of mankind being risen from the dead because of his crucifixion and the price that he pays for spiritual death. It's very important for you to understand something. In the letters that Paul writes to the church, when he speaks of sin, he speaks of, he uses two words. He says sin and sins, plural. Sin singular, sin plural. Sin is always spoken of as an interchangeable term with spiritual death. Man doesn't have a sins problem. Man has a sin problem what I mean by that and what the Holy Ghost was inspiring Paul to tell us is the problem is not that man does the wrong things the problem is that man is dead Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 and you who were dead in trespasses and sins has he quickened together with him you who were dead your problem before you knew Jesus was not the bad stuff you did your problem was that you were spiritually dead and spiritually dead men cannot change their behavior. So man doesn't have a sins problem. Man has a death problem. Talking about mankind. That's why when you don't do the right thing now, you don't have a behavior problem. Why? Because you're not dead anymore. You're alive. Your behavior problem doesn't change the nature. Man's sins when he's unsaved, is not his problem. His problem is that he's dead. But once that spiritual death problem is solved by the life of God through Jesus, making Jesus the Lord of your life, you don't have a sins problem anymore. You may have a problem with your flesh wanting to do what it used to do, but that doesn't change your nature, which is righteousness. That's the hardest thing to get across to people to convince them, to show them in the Bible and convince them that you sinning doesn't make you a sinner. There's nothing you can do that makes you a sinner. You may engage in sinful action, but that doesn't change the nature of righteousness that was made unto you because you made Jesus the Lord of your life. Now, some people hear that and say, well, hey, that's great news. I'm righteous no matter what I do, so I'll go do all the wrong things I want. Okay, good luck with that. See how that works for you. But for me, that says, praise God, I'm righteous no matter what. That means I don't have to worry about the wrong stuff. God's not holding that against me. Focus on who I am in Christ Jesus. Confess that. Meditate on that. And that'll keep me from doing wrong things down the road. I've never found anybody that can stop sinning because they knew it was wrong. Because you know everything's wrong before you do it. You don't commit sin and say, oh man, who, if only I'd known that was wrong, I wouldn't have done that. Nobody does that. You don't stop sinning because you know something's wrong. You stop sinning because you realize, wait a minute, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I don't have to do that. And I don't want to anymore. Now I've got the life of God on the inside of me that strengthens me and keeps me from able, from, enables me not to do it. See what he means? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He's talking to her about her brother, but he's talking to them in this incident about mankind. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now, he can't be talking about physical death. He can't be talking about physical death here. So he's got to be talking about something bigger picture than just Lazarus having died physically. He's talking about spiritual death versus eternal life. Then he asked her, believest thou this? And she said unto him, yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. That sounds good, doesn't it? Does she really believe that? Well, let's see. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, the master has come and calleth for thee. So get the picture. She goes out to where Jesus is. Jesus stops. He doesn't walk with her back to her house. He stops some distance away. She talks to him. He tells her her brother will live again. I'm the resurrection and the life and so forth. She makes the confession, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, which has come into the world. Then she leaves, goes back to her house, finds Mary still sitting. Still sitting. Now, Mary's just as grieved as Martha is. Don't think that Mary's some callous person because she's not running out there too. She's just sitting. She's not getting in a hurry about this. She's waiting on whatever she perceives to be the right time to do the right thing. Now, Martha, after having been given some outstanding spiritual truth, goes back to Mary and invents a story. She says... Jesus is out there, and he's calling for you. Now, why does she do this? Apparently, to me at least, it looks like she's saying, man, he's talking spiritual stuff. You better get out there. That's way too much for me to understand. I I need to find somebody to, to, you know, set the table for. I'm used to doing stuff. He's talking spiritual things. He's calling for you. Well, that moves her. She gets up. She takes off. Now, notice what happens. Now, as soon as she heard that verse 29, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now, Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. In other words, he stayed put. Jesus is not in a hurry about any of this stuff. He already knows that he's been dead for four days, and he's still not rushing. Now, folks, everybody, you need to understand Jewish custom is that the spirit can return into the body for the first three days. After that, too late. That's why the embalming process that the Jews learned from Egypt when they were in bondage for those many years, that's why they would leave the face undone. They would mummify the rest of the body, but they would leave the face part undone so that the spirit could return into the body for those three days. But after those three days, then they needed to go finish the process, mummify the face area. That's exactly what they did with Jesus. That's how they found Jesus was raised on the third day. The women were going To complete the embalming process. Now it's been four days. The embalming process has been completed. Lazarus is a mummy. Jesus isn't in a hurry. He's staying put. Mary comes to him. Mary says basically the same thing. That that Martha does. But notice what happened first. Verse 31. That said the Jews then which were with her in the house. And comforted her. I still haven't figured out how they're doing that. I don't think that means much. When they saw Mary that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying she goes under the grave to weep there. Now, folks, here, I want you to guess what religious people are like. Religious people have the idea that them doing something means everything because it's them. Why would Mary be leaving the house so quickly? They thought that it was to go out to the grave to weep. Isn't that kind of a private thing? Mary didn't stand up and say, hey, y'all come with me to the gravesite. She got up and rushed out of the house and they said, she's going to the grave to weep. She didn't say anything to us, which means she wants to be alone. Let's go with her. That's what religion does. Religion thinks they're it and that they're what counts. They're not concerned for her. They're concerned for what their action is going to be and what they can say that they did. What a surprise when the Jews get there where Mary is and find out it's Jesus. She didn't go to the gravesite. She went to where Jesus was. When, therefore, when Jesus therefore saw... Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped one, didn't I? Verse 32. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. Here he is again. Every time we see Mary, she's at Jesus' feet. She fell down at his feet saying unto him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. I'm I'm not convinced they're weeping because of real grief, but they're putting on the show. And Jesus said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. Now, remember, folks, these are the Jews that have have been commanded to, to kill Jesus when they see him again. Bring him to the high priest. These are the very ones that took up stones to stone him because of his words, because of his works, and because he claimed to be the Christ. But Oh, look how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind... What do you mean? The eyes of the blind is John chapter 9. They wanted to kill him for doing it. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died. Man, these guys, these snakes. That's what some people are like. Oh, it sounds good. Couldn't Jesus have stopped this from happening? Now, folks, let me show you what religion does. Let me show you what the spirit of of the world, literally, that the devil is influencing. Let me show you how he works. How many times have you heard in church circles, Christian circles, good, well-meaning, sincere Christians say, I don't know why God let this happen to me. I want you to understand something, folks. That's the spirit of death. You cuddle up with that thing and be ready to slide downhill. That's what these religious leaders are doing. Couldn't this man that opened the eyes of the blind, yeah, we got mad at him for that, wanted to kill him for it. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? If it was up to them, he would have been dead along with Lazarus. But oh, what a sweet thought. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. And it was a cave and a stone lay upon it where it says in verse 33. And again, in verse 38, groaning in himself, this is where the Holy Ghost begins to move on Jesus. Jesus is not just, well, we'll think about it for yourself. When he said back over in verse, uh, Four, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. When Jesus gets to where they are, where Mary and Martha are, and finds out that Lazarus has been dead for four days, that's not a surprise to Jesus. The length of time may have been unexpected, but Jesus has already told his disciples Lazarus died before he ever started going back. He knows that he died. So Jesus is not going to be physically affected in this situation by saying, oh, wow, he really died. I know that this sickness is not unto death. It won't ultimately result in death, but for the glory of God. But, oh, my God, he died. This is not some physical response. This is something that's happening in him. This is something where he's being moved by the Holy Spirit to do a miraculous work. And notice the reason or the, one of the things that's uh, identified by his groaning in the Spirit and his weeping over this thing is that the Jews... The ones that want to kill him said, look how he loved him. It's revealing to them who won't receive him in spite of his words, in spite of his miracles, and in spite of him, his claim to be the Messiah. And with evidence, they won't receive any of those things. But when they see that he loves Lazarus, that has an effect on them. So Jesus, again, groans in the spirit groans in himself, and he comes to the grave, and it was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Then Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Then Martha, the sister of him that was dead, the one that said, in verse 27, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Yea, you're the Son of God. That means you're equal with God. You can do anything. Martha says, Wait a minute. He's been dead for four days. He stinks. His body started decay." Let me ask you a question. What do people think he's going to the graveside for? He knows what he's going for. What do they think he's going for? To see. Martha thinks he wants to see the gravesite. When he says, take away the stone, she said, whoa, Jesus, you can't see anything close up. We've got things to consider here. The smell would be awful. Why is she responsible for the smell? Martha thinks she's responsible for everything. But why would she be? It's not her house. It's not like it's in her backyard. They opened the tomb in her backyard. That's not where he's buried. Why does she care if he stinks? Why does she care about what Jesus is doing or why he's doing it? What difference does it make to her? Again, it shows her personality. She's so concerned about the details. Now, she's just confessed that she believes Jesus is the son of God that was sent to the world, the Christ. But there has not even the shadow of a thought come to her mind that she will physically raise her brother. He will physically raise her brother from the dead. Otherwise, she's not going to be throwing up a fuss. So she says, Master, by now he stinks. For he's been dead four days. Then Jesus said to her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believed, thou should see the glory of God. So what does that mean? Verse 23, thy brother shall rise again. That must mean the glory of God. That must be what Jesus was talking about. He said, didn't I tell you if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Please notice that the glory of God is a miracle taking place that results in a dead man living. wonder what the glory of God means now. I'm sure the definition has changed. Wouldn't you think? Why would we think that it has? Jesus said unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. You know what I like about this? I love about this that somebody takes what Jesus says, irresp- irregardless of all the things that are taking place around them. Mary said, oh, no, wait, what are we going to do? It's going to smell and all this kind of stuff. Somebody hears Jesus say, take away the stone and says, okay. Now, I don't know if this is a servant. I don't know if this is somebody that knows him. But somebody hears his word and acts on it just because he said so. So they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, now, who's there? Mary's there. Martha's there. The Jews are there. The very ones that came from Jerusalem that were part of the group that wanted to stone him before. Everybody hears this. Why did they want to stone Jesus? They wanted to stone him because of his words. He says, before Abraham was, I am. They wanted to stone him because of the works. Jesus said, many works have I done among you for which do you stone me. Many good works have I done. The third thing they wanted to stone him for was because he said, I and my father are one. You're of your father, the devil. They said, Abraham's our father. He said, if Abraham was your father, you would listen to me and believe in me. Right? Now in front of everybody, they've been questioning, who is your father? You keep talking about this father business. Who is your father? He's going to show them who his father is. That's what this story is about, folks. He lifted up his eyes with everybody able to see, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. So his father is up, right? Right? Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. Now, remember, wait a minute, hold on, hold the phone. Remember in John chapter 9, the high priest, the chief priest, and some of the the other elders, they got on to the, the blind man because they said, you need to glorify God for this because this Jesus guy is a sinner. And that's where he says, well, what a marvelous thing this is because we know God doesn't hear sinners. Yet here's a man that's opened the eyes of the blind. God heard him. He couldn't have done this. It's never been known before that somebody's opened the eyes of somebody that's been born blind. He couldn't do this unless God was with him. And that's why they kicked him out of the synagogue. Which was the best thing that ever happened for him. Remember? Now Jesus is saying, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. He's identifying that it's God behind everything that the Jews and the Pharisees have been kicking against from day one. For everybody to see. Once Again, and the last time, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Not that you hear me, have heard me. He's already talked to God about this. That's why he knows what's going on. That's why he knew that this wouldn't result ultimately in death. Lazarus died, sure, but it's not going to result in his ultimate or permanent death. So he says, Father, I thank you. He lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Verse 42, and I knew that thou hearest me always. Now he's talking present tense, present perfect tense, actually. He says, I thank you that you hear me always. I know that you always hear me. Now, this is the difference between verse 22 where Martha says, and I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Even though you're a beggar and God is great, now he says something different. He said, I know that you hearest me always. In other words, he says, We're one in the same. We're on equal footing. And that's why I know that you always hear me. Because I'm in you and you're in me. There's no difference between you and me except you're there and I'm here. We're one in the same. And he makes that declaration before everybody. Now, if this thing hadn't been happening so fast, I'm sure the Jews would have taken up stones to kill him again. But he said, I thank you that you hear us, me always, or I know that you hear us, me always. But because of the people which stand by, who's standing by? The Jews. He's proving something to the Jews. But because of the people that stand by, I said it. For what purpose, Jesus? That they may believe that thou hast sent me. That's what they've refused to believe all along, isn't it? That's why they keep taking up stones whenever he says something or proves something or declares himself to be the Christ. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, folks, let's back up a little bit and see the big picture. If this had been us and we heard that our friend was was dying or at the point of death, we would have hurried to his bedside as quickly as we could get there, right? Because for us, time is of the essence. Time is everything. The quicker you get there. I mean, after all, we're a lot quicker to believe God for healing than we are to raise somebody from the dead. Right? Most of us, no matter what we claim when the situation isn't occurring, most of us think that healing is always available. All we have to do is tap into healing by faith. But boy, it's too late when somebody's dead. Now, I'm not suggesting you go find dead people and try to raise them up. Notice that Jesus had some special thing of the Holy Ghost going on with him. But this is not the first person Jesus has raised from the dead in his ministry. Is it? He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. The disciples saw and heard about that. He stopped with his disciples in the middle of a funeral procession, stopped the funeral procession itself, laid his hand on the coffin, and presented the son back to his mother, the young boy back to his mother. They saw that. Nobody here seems to be thinking, raise the dead. But I want you to notice something, folks. One word. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came out. Can I ask you a question? How does a mummy come out? Don't get this idea like the old time mummy movies where it's cloth wrappings coming off and stuff like that. And the guy's, you know, staggering around. They've just finished embalming this guy. He's a hard shell. How's he come out? He's not walking. You can't walk when you're embalmed. You can't do it. And folks, by the way, part of the, you can't prove it for certain, but part of the Egyptian bombing process is the draining of the blood. We don't know how how, um, specific they were in in following the Egyptian embalming process, but it's possible that they've drained his blood. Jesus calls for Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. What I want you to see is, The word of God is powerful enough to quicken a dead man with one word spoken. I am firmly convinced that it's time for us to quit playing around with is the word true or not. It's time for us to quit playing around with is there enough power in the word to take care of what we need. Jesus said one thing Lazarus come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Bound hand and foot. That means he can't walk. Bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. That means the embalming process had finished after the third day. And Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. Who's he talking to? Jesus said unto them, well, he said up here in. uh, Verse 42, he said, because of the people which stand by, I said it. that I know you hear me always. He's talking to the Jews as much as he's talking to anybody and everybody there. He said, loose him and let him go. Now, there's no question in my mind that this has a spiritual application. This is man being set free by the power of God. But notice that just. Getting saved, that which represents getting saved, being born again, doesn't strip all the grave clothes off of you automatically. That's the job of the church. The church's job is to teach and train so that people can strip those things from themselves or we can help strip them off of them. And I'm talking about addictions. I'm talking about habits. I'm talking about all kinds of things that they were involved in before they met Jesus. That's the work of the church to help people get themselves cleaned up and and in line with the things of God. That's the job of the church. He didn't say, now let Lazarus struggle till he's free. No, that's somebody else's job to help. That's the job of the church. Only Jesus can set somebody free spiritually. Only Jesus can bring somebody from spiritual death to eternal life. But once that takes place, others have a part to play. Loose them and let them go. Now, this should have a great impact on everybody there, shouldn't it? Well, let's see. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary. I want you to notice verse 19. Many of the the Jews in Jerusalem, many of the the Pharisees, the chief priests, the the elders, and so forth, the council members, they came to help Mary and Martha to comfort them because of Lazarus' death. Now it says many of the ones that came to Mary. Isn't that interesting? It says they came to Mary. She's always the one that's identified. They came to Mary and had, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told him what things Jesus had done. So here's Jesus going back to Judea again for one purpose, and that is to show that he has power over death That he is the Christ, that God hears and answers him always because he's one with the Father. And many of the Jews that refuse to believe because of his words, refuse to believe because of the blind man in John chapter 9 being healed, refuse to believe because of the multitudes being fed, refuse to believe because of any and everything else that he did, even his claims to be the Messiah, now some of them finally believe. But others. Others go back to the Pharisees. The chief priests and the Pharisees and tell them the things that Jesus did. What would be their purpose? There's only one purpose behind this, folks, and you need to realize there are still people that are out there like this today. There's only one purpose, and that is to inflame the hatred that the chief priests and the Pharisees in Jerusalem already have for Jesus. Bible says one of the things that Jesus, that God hates is he that sows discord among the brethren. Here's a great example of it right here. Great example of it right here. Some people are more interested in gossiping and having the story than in God. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. Folks, I want you to, uh, well, uh, we're running out of time. Let me just turn back to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is the story of another man named Lazarus, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In this story in Luke 16, Lazarus is a beggar. Both the rich man and the beggar died. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes to hell. The rich man is requesting for Lazarus to come, dip his t- uh, cool his tongue, you know, with uh, with water because he's tormented by the flame. And then finally, he says to Abraham, after he finds out that can't happen, he says to Abraham, "Send somebody back to the earth that they can tell my five brothers and sisters, or five brothers, that they can th- avoid coming to this place." Notice what Abraham says, Luke chapter sixteen. Abraham says. Uh, well, we better start in verse 29. Abraham said unto him, when he asked to, uh, to send somebody back to the earth, Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. That's exactly what we've got going on here in John chapter 11. Because now the chief priests and the Pharisees aren't asking questions. Wait a minute. We know Lazarus was dead. We know that he's been dead for four days. You're telling me Lazarus is alive? They could have had every right to say, you know what, I need to go see this for myself. This sounds too good to be true. So let's walk this two miles down to Bethany and see Lazarus for ourselves. That would have been okay. I mean, not not the highest type of faith, certainly. But that would have been legitimate. That would have been understandable, wouldn't it? That's not their position. Their position is, we got to do something about this guy. Now he's raising the dead. Who do they think he is? Who could he possibly be if he's raising the dead? That doesn't factor in for one moment into their thinking. They said, what do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation." They're concerned about one thing. They're concerned that the people are going to hear that Jesus is raising the dead. They're going to say, he's the Messiah, let's make him the king. They wanted to do that when he fed the 5,000. Remember? They wanted to make him a king just over feeding them bread and multiplying fishes. They're concerned, oh my goodness, this could cause an uprising. People hear about this. Who wouldn't believe on, on him for this? Well, then why aren't you believing on him? We've got to stop this. We've got to stop this right now because if we don't stop this right now, we're going to lose our opportunity to worship in the temple. We're going to lose our opportunity. Why are they not thinking, wait a minute, if he is the Messiah, what does that mean? Why do they refuse to consider what plan God has in, in store? Doesn't even call it, give them pause. They said, what are we going to do? If we leave this guy alone, everybody's going to believe on him. Well, that's certainly true. Without the devil's resistance, everybody would believe in Jesus. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all. I've got the answer here. You folks are fools. You know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. Folks, I want you to consider two things. First of all, Caiaphas is saying very simply this. I don't care if he's raising the dead. I don't care if he's opening the eyes of the blind. I don't care if he's cleansing the lepers. I don't care if he's multiplying loaves and fishes. I don't care about any of that stuff. All that it takes is for him to die. And the rest of us will be okay. That's the first thing. The second thing is that there's no way for John to know what was said in this council meeting. He's not there. How does he know? He's giving us an eyewitness account. Or what sounds like an eyewitness account. First person account, certainly. Here's what happened in the council. How's he know? John didn't go to the council with him. John's back over there in Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus now living. How's he know? There's only one possible explanation, folks, and that is after, sometime after Jesus was raised from the dead, one of these council members apparently, perhaps was born again, came into the family of God and said, I was there when Caiaphas said this. Then John looking from sixty years down the road backwards, saying, Well, when he said that, he had to have been prophesying. That had to have been by the Spirit of God, because Jesus was the sacrifice for all of Israel. Verse forty verse fifty two. And not for that nation only, meaning Israel. Here this is John speaking about what Caiaphas said, being inspired by the Holy Ghost, and not for that nation only, but that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, John is trying to show the church of his day, A.D. 90. He's trying to show the church of his day, here's the plan of God, here's how God worked together to bring all of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, unto a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up unto Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment, that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. In other words, it's common knowledge throughout the temple now. Everybody knows. This guy named Jesus has been condemned to death. If you know where he is and don't tell us, we'll do the same to you. Now, Jesus has been to two, fe- two feasts of the Passovers before, two Passover feasts before. The first time he was there is in John chapter 2 where he cleansed the temple. He ran the money changers out and he said, my father's house is not a, a den of merchandise, but it should be a house of prayer. And the people were amazed that he cleansed the temple. He defended the the temple's honor, the house of God's honor. The second time he was there in John chapter 6, a year later, the second feast of the Passover, was where he multiplied the loaves and the fishes and they tried to take him and make him a king. Everybody's looking for this. People that are living in outlying areas, not very aware of what's going on in the meantime, they know for the last two years this Jesus guy has really created a stir. They come expecting To see him. And they do. They do. The Pharisees think this is an opportunity. He has to come. He breaks the law of Moses if he doesn't come. He has to come. We don't have to go looking for him. He'll come right into our hands. So they let everybody know. This feast of the Passover is going to be one that centers around Jesus' death. Which is is exactly what happens. But not the death they thought it was going to happen. The death that redeems mankind from spiritual death. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing the truth of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. Because of your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you died so that we might live. We were just as dead as Lazarus. Only we might not have been aware of it. But, oh, thank you that you traded death for life. You made us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You placed us in Christ, Father. You raised us up together with him. And you seated us in heavenly places at your right hand. The place of authority. And now in that authority, the authority that belongs to the name of Jesus, We are to do the same works as Jesus and even greater works. Father, expand our hearts that we might know the power that resides in us because of the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Expand our hearts, Father, that we might recognize Your plan and Your purpose in us and that we might do the works of Jesus. Make us bigger on the inside, Father, that we can do the works of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.